When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time to remember this crap with the current leader in the poll for best co-host of a Pointless Exercise Podcast, Mike Donahue. Mike, how are you? All, all that glad handling paid off. Yeah. Well, the commercials, I thought it was a little bit, a little much. You did attack ads on Pusateri and Dave Brown, but you know, I <laughs> Come to expect that. Hey, Pusateri lives in Hollywood. All right, he's jet setting back and forth from Chicago. I've never lived more than seventy-five miles from uh, the the address I grew up in. That's the truth. Yeah. So, for, for those of you who might not know what we're talking about, there is currently a survey on pointlessexercise.com that you could take and give some feedback on the newsletter. And even if you don't read the newsletter, you can just skip those questions. And there are questions about the podcast. Things we might add, things we might uh, improve, things we might... Uh, maybe I'll just cancel one of the podcasts. Who knows? Um, and someone is going to win. It's a, it's a great prize package. They're going to win six free months of the Pointless Exercise newsletter. If you're new, you get a new subscription for six months. And if you're a current subscriber, it just you just don't pay for the... You get six months tacked on to whatever you currently have. And I know this works. Because I gave one to a guy already once, and he was a month-to-month, and for six months he didn't have to pay. And um, I believe that if you're an annual, your renewal will get pushed back by six months. So, And you get to pick any t-shirt of your choice. Well, any one t-shirt, I should say, uh, from the <laughs> exercise store. Not to complicate things, but if you do already have an annual subscription, uh, can you gift your prize? Is it transferable by chance? Uh I don't know. Right? That would Chuck be our legal. Actually, no, you could because I you would just tell me who to gift it to, and I would give it to that person instead. So Bada yes, bing. Yes, you could. You could uh, give it to your wife for a uh, birthday present. I'm sure she's uh, very excited. Valuable feedback, folks. Vote early and often. Yeah, vote early and vote often. Um, I don't know if it increases your chances of winning or not. Uh, I don't know. Let's say it doesn't, just for just for the sanctity of the – and so uh, the, I have the results uh, on a podcast next week. Steve Kornacki from MSNBC is going to come, and he's going to stand in front of the big uh, board, and he's going to break everything down. Uh, there are no mail-in ballots because we know those are, those are corrupt. It's a scam. Um, anyway. I'll be yeah. having my uh, election night party from Wrigleyville North. Yeah, returns. I can trickle the returns out every like every twenty minutes. It'd be very exciting. Um, got some very interesting answers on the question: What guests should I have on the podcast? My favorite, as I was just going over the, some of the preliminary results with Mike, was two of you thought that the question was: Do you want to come on the podcast? Which uh, it's not what it said. <laughs> One of you your said name no, and the other said, contact. "Well, maybe." It's like, uh, no. Let me record myself for a little bit first. I'll get back to well, you. maybe one of them was maybe one of them was Praz, and he just thought he was the only one who got the survey, and he wanted to say, "I want to come on again." 
So that's it. Could have been. He did a good job. I'm sure we'll have he did. again. There will be some. I enjoyed that. There will be some more. Uh, I'm sure the Cubs will be making news here in the next well, uh, few days. Right? They're gonna. To they're discuss. gonna. You mean they're gonna continue to be hotter than shit? Right? This is this is where it starts. This is the uh, the coalescing of the epic. Uh, what do you got? A six game winning streak? Six in a row. That's it. Five um, in a row since undefeated since the break. Only the it will be hilarious. I just thought of this. It will be hilarious if they don't lose all the way through the end of the month. And they'll still be what, like seven games under five hundred, and that that's still trade everybody. <laughs> I would love that to happen, just to put them in that spot for no other reason than it would be enjoyable. Now you'll know well, that they're worried about that if they some if they immediately call up Nick Madrigal and activate Jason Hayward. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the reinforcements are coming. I love uh, Crawley is the biggest. Uh, uh, perpetrator of this he loves to uh, whenever the cubs give out updates as to how the rehabbing guys are doing he always tweets reinforcements are on the way it's like uh crowley uh, jason hayward is not a reinforcement i hate no. to tell you and nick madrigal, nick madrigal not, he he's a, a re he's a reinforce it cuts off after the letter r the second r all right well we are down to um we just have seven years left it's 25 down seven to go so pretty evenly distributed. Couldn't get anything tonight, folks. For any era, I think every most errors are pretty much represented here. So we'll see. We'll see where it falls. So here we go. Nineteen eighty-eight. So what do you know? Five quick things about the 1988 Chicago Cubs. Opening day, Rick Sutcliffe's fourth consecutive opening day start as the Cubs go extra innings in Atlanta and uh, and, and pull it out. Also, oh, opening day was the debut of uh, Don Zimmer, who returned after having been uh, Jim Fry's third base coach, uh, 84, 85, 86, and uh, came back uh, for the 88 Cubs in the at the helm uh, in the 88 season. Uh, 1988 would be uh, the year in which Mark Grace would get called up, replace my longtime hero, Leon Durham. Grace would go on to be a runner-up for Rookie of the Year to the Cincinnati Reds' Chris Sabo. I guess not carb-related, but that makes me think that 88 was the all-star game in Riverfront Stadium, or I might be I might be over my skis on that, but Chris Sabo, uh, a.k.a. Spuds McKenzie, was quite uh, well, it had to be a net. It had to be a National League one because okay. uh, the Cubs had it in 90, right? And that was back in the they did. days when they used to alternate. And so somehow I feel a Sable was an all-star as a rookie and it was in Cincinnati. I could be wrong, but basically the country was all about, it was Sable mania. That's, that's what did Mark Grayson um, in, in 88. Um, in 1988, a young Michael Donahue caught a ball uh, in the stands in the bleachers from a young Doug DeCenzo for the first of two times. Second, I already mentioned happened in 1996. I'd like to maybe revisit that story because uh, there are some funny things associated I thought, with I that. I going to say somebody threw Doug DeCenzo into the bleachers and you caught him. And I just fucked it up. It's not Doug DeCenzo. What am I thinking? It was John Cangelosi of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, what's the, what's not, the difference? Not, well, that's, I think it was common to make that mistake. I don't know if DeCenzo would have been up by 88. Would you say but, Doug DeCenzo was the right-handed John Cangelosi? 
Uh, fair enough. Very. I think we might. Right head, right? This podcast would probably warrant a, a sort of a, a tale of the tape between uh, uh, Doug Desenzo no, and Jack Angelo. A lot of similarities. Doug Italian Senzo Americans. Also left-handed, but he is a switch hitter. That's why I knew. I remembered him batting. Ah, that's right. Okay. Uh, no, he's I, the most effective lefty Cub reliever in history. Good point. Not Pat Perry. Who was not, I believe, on the '88 Cubs. Was in '89, but you know who was on the '88 Cubs, Andy, for his first real full season. It seemed. I don't think he was an All Star, but uh, Cubs left fielder Rafael Palmero. Oh, he was an All Star. He was. He was one of the eight. All right, make that the fifth fact. The Cubs had a shitload, just like they did in 2008. Uh, Five random air sets facts. Won just as many playoff games in '88 as they did in 2008. Good point. So Palmero, Palmero was a Cub All-Star. Yeah. Not like Ron Coomer, who is a former Cub and, and All-Star. All-Star. Raphael Palmero is actually a former Cub All-Star. I guess I uh, had forgotten that fact. Forgotten that crap. I believe he wow. may have been he may have been leading the National League in hitting at the All-Star break. Do I... Okay. Yeah. And... I'll take your word for it. I, I'll, How about this? I'll tell you. How many tests? So Raphael Palmero, who retired with 3,000 hits and 500 home runs, one of the few people who did that, and and he likes some uh, injectable vitamins, so he's not going to get in the Hall of Fame. With and he won, uh, you know, he won that one bogus Gold Glove, but he also won uh, just one. But he won more. He won more than one total, but one was bogus. That was his third in a row. Okay, it was one of those where people were just used to voting for him, even though he DH'd almost the whole year. He won a Gold right. Glove. How many times in his 20-year career do you think Rafael Palmero was an all-star? Um, I The way you phrase it would make me guess that his Cub appearance was the only one, but that can't be correct. So I'm going to just say it's still uh, seemingly low and say three. Four. He only made the all-star yeah. team four times. A career 288 hitter, 3,000 hits. I, you know, I guess – he was a good player. He wasn't just a compiler. He was a good, he led the league. He led the American league in hits one year. He led the American league in doubles one year. He led the league in runs one year. Well, wait a sec. Who, uh, well, who are these, the first basemen in the American league that were keeping him out? McGuire. Uh, uh yeah. Mattingly. Maybe Carlos, Mattingly. Carlos Delgado. Okay. Um, there's probably great ones out there that I can't think okay. of. Well, that's, you know, that's two. You're not going to, you know, you're really not going to have more than three anyway. So he's, you know. John Olerud. And his batting helmet. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, tough luck. Uh, Greg Walker. <laughs> well, Frank Thomas. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I could see where Frank might make more all-star teams than Rafi. Yeah, all right. So tough luck for Rafi. Oddly enough, of course, not a first baseman. Never really was a first baseman for the Cubs. Brian Daubach. You might have been keeping him out. <laughs> we got a uh, Cecil, uh, Cecil Fielder. Would have been Fred McGriff. Yeah. With Toronto and the Rays, maybe. Toronto in the early well, when did McGriff Bra- get traded well, to Atlanta? In, he was in Atlanta in '93, but the, that was in '93. Was that was? Yeah, they were kind of ships passing, and he got Rafi got there in '89. Oh, American League, like uh, the Cubs franchise, the American League in the '80s and '90s, like the Cubs franchise for the last fifty years. A lot of good first basemen. 
Uh, of course, the Cubs are so good, as we've talked about at first, that Palmero didn't even really use his first baseman's mitt because opening day was Leon Durham's last opening day with the Cubs. And, and then some at some point in early uh, in early May, uh, the much ballyhooed Mark Grace finally got his call up. So in San Diego, wearing what number? I thought it was fifty three, but we talked about it before. It wasn't. It wasn't seventeen. Twenty eight. That's because that's the number. That's the extra one. Yosh packed. That's how cheap the Cubs were back then. Couldn't stitch a number on a jersey for the rookie. I want to be seventeen. Well, you can wait till we get back to Chicago, kid. Then we can give you your real number. So Grace. Well, I guess I, I did not. Uh, I'm not interjecting this in light of current events, but I will say that Grace and a teammate of his the year before at Pittsfield, Massachusetts, were the object of this prospect pervert's um, attention every week when the sporting news would come out. Which, of course, the was sporting the, news was the only way. Was go ahead. Was it the handsome, super tan Damon Berryhill? It was not. It was oh. the. Uh, moment of silence. They just recently deceased oh, Dwight yes. Smith. Oh yes, Dwight Smith. Teammates on the '87 Pittsfield Cubs, and what I remember, and maybe this won't stand the test of time, but I seem to remember that Grace and Smith were one-two in uh, batting in the uh, 1987. I guess it would be Eastern League. And um, not to be, you know casting stares at other ball players while my guy Leon Durham was still, you know, toughing it out at first base for the Cub but the Cubs. But uh I was very intrigued by uh the names Grayson Smith on the eighty seven Cubs. Smith would stay down in eighty eight for a little more seasoning. His story, you know, right. we've already told Try her. Try to learn how to catch a fly ball. Something that Well, never which really he did. never quite grasped. And uh so he he, he stayed out but Grace got the call up in eighty eight. Um and, you know, pretty much it's one of those cases where uh, the prospect panned out and uh, he was, you know, one of the more fun players to watch over the course of the next 13 years. But, yeah, made his debut and uh, so long, Bull Durham. So while I was looking this up, I missed. Did you say which one won the batting title? Uh, was it Smith? Because I would have guessed Grace. Dwight Smith batted 337. Mark Grace batted 333. Dwight Smith and they were him out for the batting title. Okay. In Pittsfield. Um Pittsfield Cubs, one of the one of the all time greatest minor league teams uh, of all time. Barry Hill on the roster? Managed, managed by, by whom in eighty eight was it would it be like Charlie Fox or oh, somebody? Oh no. It would be the great Jim Essian. Eighty seven to fifty one. They were the uh okay, for all you prospect perverts out there, they would have been the eighties version of the current Myrtle Beach Pelicans. Uh, it's listen to the guys on this team. It's it's Cub greats everywhere. Dwight Smith, Mark Grace, uh-huh. Rolando Rooms hit three hundred eight for them. Doug, the aforementioned Doug Desenzo hit three hundred seven. A little a, a, a handsome young uh, catcher by the name of Hector Villanueva hit two seventy four wow. with fourteen homers. Not Damon Berryhill. Oh, Barry Hill was already up by 88. Yeah. He was probably triple A and up. Yep. Yeah, okay. Uh, the other catcher was also a, a future Cub, Rick Rona. He hit exactly what you'd think, 220. Um, f- uh, Hall, a major leaguer who I don't believe ever played for the Cubs. Try me. Um, 
He's best known as a Seattle Mariner outfielder. And yes, he never did play for the Cubs. Let's see how he got to Seattle. Maybe I'll tell you who he got traded for, and then you can figure out who it is. Uh, where is it? I'm struggling on this live podcast here. I don't see his transactions. That's great. Huh. Rich Amaral. I would not have been able to guess that. So I forgot he was ever a Cub. He had a, he had a relatively I don't, long. He was, I don't remember Rich Amaral. Ten-year major leaguer. And he was on the 88 Pittsfield Cubs with all these future Cubs? Yes. I wonder why. Maybe it's because I'm on the... These are all, pro- by the way, just to, not to... I got to know uh, how he got beating, there. Beating the Dallas Green what great drama. Trade. These, are all, these are all probably Dallas Green picks. Oh. Well, this is, this is quality uh, roster management. He was a second-round draft pick of the Cubs in the 83 draft. He was lost in the Rule 5 draft to the White Sox <laughs> in the 88 Rule 5 draft. That's how he left. Uh, he okay. never made it with the White Sox either. He They cut him, and he signed with the Mariners, and then he played 10 years in the big leagues for the Mariners. Good for him. 88 uh, Rule 5 was after the 88 season, then, because he was on the 88 Pittsfield yes. Cubs. Right. Okay. Would have been that, that those winter meetings. Uh, see, other Cubs who made it off the 88. Um, Laddie Renfro. Oh God! Don't trick. Come on, we we did a deep dive on that poor bastard in '91. Oh, one of their uh, one of their prized number one draft picks got to make got to pitch in one game at the '88. Must have got a uh, start late Mike, in the year. Well, Mike Harkey. Yes, Mike Harkey. Uh, Cub pitcher who made the uh, probably the greatest uh, debut of a Cub pitcher of all time. Pitched for the Pittsfield Cubs later this season, I believe. Jeff Pico. Jeff Pico. Yeah, uh, Dickie Knowles did a did a rehab of who knows which kind of rehab Dickie was doing uh, in Pittsfield. So they got some, they got to rub elbows with greatness, and uh, a guy a, a, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Rich Scheid, who I believe Rich Scheid is from brought up and the White Sox, right? Rich Scheid was a, we, he was mentioned before, believe it or not, on this podcast because he he and I believe Dean Wilkins were both traded for uh, Steve Trout after Trout threw his back to back shutouts in '87. I want to say the Cubs got back Rick, Rich Scheid and Dean Wilkins. That is right. So, and then so. he was traded by uh, the Cubs to the Sox. You said traded by the Cubs to the Sox for the great Chuck Mount. He would later get traded from the Sox to the Astros for Eric Yelding. I remember Eric Yelding. Yeah. I'm sure you do, too. All right. Um, all right. I forget. I interrupted you. Did we get through all of your five fun facts about the 88? Oh, yeah. Cubs we did play? like six or seven. It started right. bleeding uh, all over. You know, Jeff Pico could have been a fun fact because, yes, as you have pointed out just now, a member of the 88 Cubs. Uh, I think we pointed out, too, before that Pico and Grace uh, – both of their first wives, at least in Grace's case, were uh, sisters from Peoria. They were nuns. Which would have probably, probably well, that's <laughs> were a scandal. Part, part of uh, the Church of Yes, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Peoria, order, Peoria uh, chiefs in, sneaking into the convent, sneaking the, into the convent, and yes. running out with a uh, now you got to, you got to marry these girls now. Right. This is all conjecture. I you know, but. Anyway, Pete, Jeff Pico, another fun fact, uh, did make his debut in 88. And, of course, I think any Cub fan pretty much uh, un, you know, over the age of 42 will tell you that Jeff Pico threw a shutout in his Major League debut at Wrigley Field. Has any other Cub done that? I don't know. 
I can just tell you that I believe Sean Bosky in 1990 threw a complete game in his debut. I'm almost positive. But no. Uh, and Pico also threw another shutout. That He threw two shutouts in 88. He threw one against the Mets in late June. That uh, was, you know, or I'm pretty sure it was 88. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Pico threw two shutouts as a rookie. All these guys you mentioned, too. Like, I don't know about Rolando Rooms, but even uh, that guy that somehow managed to be a forgotten 10-year veteran of the Mariners, all drafted by Dallas Green. This is peak uh, Dallas Green. It's starting to become really emergent, and he's already gone, which is just kind of a a wistful sort of pondering. But, you know, I mean, that whole lineup. Yeah, Jeff Pico, 6-7 and seven for the 88 Cubs with three complete games and two shutouts. Yeah, one against the Mets. I think the debut is against the Reds. ERA of 4.15. So he was either wow. really good or... Right, two shutouts. Um, so do, do I need to... Uh, should I just drop in the rant from the uh, from the 85 Remember This Crap podcast with our special guest, uh, Kelly Dwyer, where I talk about my dog dying and the drought and the all-star game and Whitey Herzog not playing Sean Dunstan. Probably not, but I, you can listen. Well, I never heard. Yeah. You go back to that, but we can, and that's, that's a pretty poignant, hilarious and painful story, but it's all good. But there are other things about that. Like we said, there are eight players that made that all-star game. And I think the, the, the one most auspicious one was just the guy who had the hot as hell start to the season was the, the huge, Bespectable, bespectacled uh, former White Sox Vance Law, the opening day third baseman who just got off to a good start and really rode that glory. I think well, he, I, I, big, year, big year for third baseman in the National League that year, apparently. Uh, Bobby Bonilla was playing third. <laughs> he got to start the All-Star game. For the Pirates? Yeah. Okay. Um, the other third baseman on the roster, uh, there's only two, uh, Vance Law and the aforementioned uh and the rookie of the year, Chris Sabo. Was that game in Riverfront Stadium, by the way? The was I uh... piece of shit he was. It was. Yes. Yeah. Played All in right, a cool so... two to one, played in a cool two hours and twenty six minutes. Damn. Damn. You know, of course, we're at Peak Sandberg. He's in his eighty four you know, eight, four, five, six, seven. He's in his fourth all star game. Um God, who were the other so Palmero? Cubs had Maddox. Cubs so, had two so starters. The... Yeah, Maddox and uh, no start actual real starters, not starting pitchers. They had two All Star starters voted in by your oh. fans, Andre. Yes, Andre Dawson and the rain, the reigning MVP and Ryan Sandberg. Yes, so two two Cub Hall of Famers started the game. Uh, the other Cubs on the All Star team were Vance Law, Sean Dunstan. Yeah, that's right. Rafael Palmero. Right. Uh, da, 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 da. Greg Maddox. Yep. And I Maddox did not pitch either. I don't see him on here, but I always thought Sutcliffe was on there. So maybe it's just six, not eight. I think the 2008, maybe they both had six. And a lot. Yeah, it is. No, it was, I'm happy with six. So interesting thing now that you mentioned it about Maddox is six, this was Greg. Six for a team that won um, 77 games. But it's funny, too. I mean, I'll say they're, they're, they're all uh, their Pythagorean. They're, uh, this is what a good job Don's ever did. Their Pythagorean uh, record uh, should have been 162. Well, no, no, you're joking. He was right on the dot. 77, 85, and 1. And that's what, and boy, Zim. That's what Pythagoras said, too. 77 and 85. So Zimmer, he rung the absolute optimum amount yeah. out of that team. 
came back for another year and magic happened. Um, yeah, it's funny that all those all-stars, of course, were basically Jim Fry didn't bring anybody in his first year. We didn't know what a disaster he was going to be. A little bit of optimism, you know, because they were young all-stars, a little bit of mix. Oh, I'm sorry, Vance Law. My apologies. Vance yeah. Law was the one all-star that Jim Fry brought in. <laughs> but I, I want to circle back real quick and just point out that this was like the first emergent uh, emergence of Maddox, who was like hotter than shit going into the all-star break. He did not pitch in the game because he was so goddamn hot that they didn't want to like, you know, cool him off. And he pitched, he started on the Sunday before the all-star game. So he didn't get to pitch in the first all-star game that he was named to, but it was such a pleasant, delightful thing to just see happen in front of your own eyes. Maddox was this guy that the year before had gone six and 14. He got sent down, which we haven't talked about because we haven't done 87. Uh, and the Andre Dawson gets beamed in the face game where Maddox, you know, uh, retaliated. We'll see whether or not that was apocryphal and we don't need to go into it now because it didn't happen in 88. But anyway, Maddox up and down struggled. Jimmy Moyer looked like if you go by win loss, looked like he might project to be the better pitcher. That's bullshit. And Jerome Holtzman tried to tell me as much when I read that, when he was interviewing Dick Pohl before a game. And I think most insiders sense Maddox was going to be special, even though the numbers didn't bear it out in 87. And sure enough, in 88, after a few weeks, he just, he was one of the best pitchers around and pretty much didn't stop for about 17 years from that point. His, his first half stats. And I remember the record off the top of my head. Do you remember what his record was at the all-star ring? It was like 14 and three or something. Yeah, it was 15 and three. So you're like, Ooh, we're going to have a surefire 25 game winner. Game winner. It's going to be no problem. No, he's, 25, which would make him the first since uh, his Steve stone up in the broadcast. He's 15 and three with a two fourteen ERA. He threw eight complete games and 19 starts and three shutouts in the first half. He only gave up 118 hits and 155 innings. Uh, he only struck out 91. He wasn't striking anybody out, but he also, and he walked more than he was at 51 for him. That's a lot. Wow. He was still figuring it. He was still figuring it out, man. He was, and he was racking up. And in the second half, he went three and five with a 492 ERA and 15 starts. He threw one complete game. He gave up 112 hits and 93 innings. He struck out 49 batters in 93 innings in the second half. He was pooped as they like to say. But you know what? I, my takeaway there too is like how much you probably fucking learned through all that failure in the second half of that season. Well, he had the great Dick Pole guiding him. He so did. He was in good shape, I think. Well, it, it, it could have been it could have been Billy Connors. I think it was Dick Pole, right? Didn't Dick come in with? Uh, yeah, no, he came in. Uh, yeah, Connors was uh, on Fry staff. So this is between Fry and Zimmer. So, I mean, I'd have to think about it. I don't think – I think when Fry got canned as manager, Connors was like, oh, I couldn't tell you who Gene Michaels' uh, pitching coach was. I'm pretty sure Paul came in with Zimmer. I'm sure it was Paul's first – oh, maybe not. I don't know. I can't answer that. Don't know uh, who the – I used to probably know who the P- Cubs pitching coach was every single season. Um, oh. Why doesn't this list the coaches? Now, you said they didn't bring anybody in for this season, but uh, Jim Fry made a big move in the offseason. Not long after he wrestled control of the franchise, yep. he, he got he was named general manager on the 11th of November, and on the 8th of December, he made a big trade. Oh, gosh. I thought you were talking about, He also made an in-season trade, which we'll obviously get to, but you were referring, of course, 
to uh, dealing Lee Arthur yeah, Smith. Traded a, traded a Hall right. of Fame reliever for Kelvin Seraldi and Al Nipper. Attaboy. Great job. That, I, I saw Calvin Schiraldi after we all watched him shit his pants on the mound in now, and he didn't just shit his pants in the World Series; he did it in the ALCS too. I think you discovered that you pointed that out recently, yeah, you know, on a recent podcast. Yeah, sure. Let's bring that. It's kind of like when the Cubs like traded for Anthony Young. Like you're just tempting fate. Well, this guy set the record for most consecutive losses. You can't go. There's nowhere to go but up. Um, you know. Actually, I'll give Calvin a little credit. He did. He lost a game in the ALCS, but he pitched well in the other three that he pitched in. Uh, his in the World Series, however, uh, he pitched three times, and his ERA was thirteen point five, and he was a huge contributor to blowing Game Six. He was he and Bob Stanley. Calvin Chiraldi was a actually highly touted uh, Mets prospect, correct? Yes. Uh, coming on the heels of like uh, Dwight Gooden and Ron Darling. Um, in around the time of Sid Fernandez. And uh, I can't even offhand think of the trade that there had to be some big red sock that ended up on the 86 Mets. All we know yeah, is that he think. was. Uh, it's a trade with a lot of names and only one guy kind of stands out mostly because he cut uh, his finger off when he was an Indian. Um, in 19, in November 13th, 85, the trade was a Bible heater. Yeah. John no. Christensen, Wes Gardner, Lachelle Tarver and Calvin Schiraldi to the Red Sox. Okay. Chris Bayer, Tom McCarthy, John Mitchell, and Bob Ojeda. Bob Ojeda is the only one you any of us should have any right to recognize. Now, do you and remember was, when the Cubs when the Cubs traded him away the next year? Who they got? Uh, I do. Uh, your buddy Marvell Wynn. Well, and no, yes, but there was probably and a Lu- little more important part of that trade. Luis Salazar. Yes, Luis Salazar. Yes. Okay. It was Darren Jackson, Calvin Schiraldi, and then. Player name later was Phil Stevenson. Came and Darren, right. And can Darren Jackson also did because 85 is when he showed up on my TV screen in Monday Night Baseball instead of either Bob Denier or Billy Hatcher, the Kurt Urkel voiced White Sox uh, broadcaster, also a member of the 88 Cubs and another Dallas Green draft pick. Team is riddled with Dallas. This Dallas Green farm just coming to life here. So now, uh, Jim Fry, not, you know, He's a savvy uh, wheeler dealer. He wasn't going to just install Calvin Schiraldi as the closer. Do you remember who he signed? A free agent, biggest free agent acquisition well, to close actually, the Cubs. And I believe Schiraldi was uh, acquired with the intention of making him a starter. Yeah, he did. He believe he started. He's listed. He started uh, 27 games. Yeah. Like, oh, the problem was you put him in late pressure situation. Yeah. If you let him start again, it'll be awesome. So to, 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 to replace the actual closer, let's uh, I'll get that old pair of balls that calls himself <laughs> Goose Gossage. Goose Gossage. It's funny. When you think of Goose with the Cubs, right? I mean, that's an old dude, like mm-hmm. ancient. You know how old he was? 36. <laughs> Still old by 1988. No, but he looked like he was 50. He was old and, and ineffective. Yes. And, you know, he was one of the most dominant closers for whatever a closer was in the early 80s. And he was a White Sox starter for you. I mean, he'd been around a while. And, yeah, it was like, and, you know, Lee Smith was as good as you could get. I think I took him for granted because I would sort of linger on the games he blew. Like He blew like a handful of Sucklifts games in 87, which probably cost the Red Baron his second Cy Young. 
Um, and, you know, I gave up the homer to Garvey, but like, what do you want out of closers, especially back then, pitching so much? And obviously, in retrospect, that's well, but I didn't like him because he, Lee would sleep in the clubhouse till like the third or fourth thing. It's like he's not pitching. That stuff doesn't bother. He's it's not just pitching there's, until there's the ninth, before. Jim. Yeah. They're just being nitpicky. The 1988 like, Cubs, you know how many saves they had as a team? How many saves pitchers collectively acquired? Yeah. Uh, is it less than 20? It was 29. It was 11th in the what? The then 13 team National League? Uh, 12. It was 12 oh, and 14. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, they were, that's right. They were, uh, they were, I remember there were 26 teams. Yep. Six and six in each division. So, so only one team had fewer saves than the Cubs. Okay. And, and did Gossage lead the team in saves? He did with 13. Um, did Les Lancaster vulture a save? Frank DePino had six. Les Lan- Lester Lacknaster had five. Pat Perry had mm. one. And oh, he was an idiot. Hall. Drew Hall had a oh, save. Yeah. Calvin had a save. Al Nipper had a save. Hey, everybody gets a save. Why not? I can't believe Drew Hall actually saved a game. Jeff I don't Pico recall him ever getting called up. Oh, all right. Jeff Pico three. threw two shutouts, three complete games, and got a save. Talk about it. Uh, Probably an extra inning game, I bet. Talking Maybe. about your rookie of the He should have been rookie of the year. I don't know who won that year, but it should have been Jeff Pico. He won this. It's Chris Sabo. We already went over this. And Mark, right. Mark Grace finished second. It, this was where, of course, remember too that Grace was the first of three consecutive runner-ups of Rookie of the Year. Dwight Smith, his uh, teammate from the year before, would be the runner-up the next year. And, of course, the aforementioned already Mike Harkey would be the runner-up in 1990. And that's not even mentioning Jerome Walton won the damn thing the next year. Yeah. So. Well, it was, yeah, Gordon Goldsberry knew what he was doing. That's why, uh, that's why Jim Fry had to fire him. It was just, it's just, it's just, I, I hate to dwell on the point, but I feel like everything I look, I look at keeps coming back to that. Like how tragic it was that the, the whole field is littered with these blooming prospects that Dallas Green had spent six years planting that now knowing what happens in the subsequent three seasons and how much salt well, what Jim would the, Fry. Would, what would the Cubs of our youth have looked like had the Cubs never hired Jim Fry to do anything? Well, there's the Lee. There's Lee Ilya lead them through San Diego. Does yeah, that even happen? Somebody, some other game? manager who's not him, and then he's not around to become the GM and fuck that up. Yeah, I mean his his time as a manager. I'm not going to be critical because it's easy to nitpick on the how he managed the rotation, the playoffs, blah blah blah, and his stupid, like you say, is is like indoor track shoes yep. that he would waddle out there. And his time as the GM though, almost undoes all the good he did as, as a manager. I feel like in my book, and it's just so worthless and, and really one of the worst periods. And that's really, uh, there's a lot of competition for worst general managers and he, but just considering the resources he had, the inertia that he had, the momentum that he had that was building up and just completely fucking just, Squat on it and like dissolve it unintentionally and frustratingly. You know, this was kind of the peak. It, I mean, they Jesus, you know, Dawson and Vance Law are the only guys over 30 on this roster, and they would win a division the next year. <laughs> so, still a Jerry Mumphrey on the roster in '88. We give Jerry his due, he was on his way out in '88, though. Don't look at his numbers. Oh, no. He performed better than uh, I think we had we had appreciated. He was kind of an underrated player, maybe. Yeah, he. Had, we we I had already realized in '86 he hit 304 for the Cubs, and in '87 no. he hit 333 for the Cubs. 
in and it's not like he played you know forty games. He played one hundred and eleven games at eighty six, one hundred and eighteen games in eighty seven. Yeah, yeah, he was done at eighty eight. Denier is getting banged up. And that was his last um, last season in the majors. Cubs have that effect on a lot of people. Where they they do finish things. They, they did. So um, I'm not sure the game in particular. I'm sure I could find it, but I wanted to just quickly relate a, an anecdote that would have uh, occurred in '88 when I was a 16 year old. And at the time, I had two brothers that were both uh, recent college graduates that aged, I think, like 23, 25, that had uh, gotten an apartment uh, just off the intersection of Clark, Sheffield, and Newport. And uh, so I would find reasons, especially in the summer, to make my way down there and have a place to, you know, to crash and whatnot. And um, so I went to a few games. I was, you know, working that summer, so I wasn't completely uh, irresponsible and, and, and a total bleacher bump. I do remember it was a Pittsburgh series because Rick Russell was, uh, was pitching uh, against the Cubs. So that was kind of a thrill, but I went to back-to-back games. And so the first one was I had to like get in the first row and save a couple of seats for my brother and his buddy. They were getting off of work early and uh, you know, and, and because I was around older adults, I don't remember much of the afternoon after they arrived. Um, they were quick to indulge a 16 year old. But then the next day, again, I'm not working. They're at work. I'm going to the game by myself. And so I sit out in the bleachers again and uh, this time I'm sitting in left field, and I'm not sure it's June, probably June 13th, 14th, or 15th, because I'm figuring school is out, and uh, that's the first place that I'm heading. So this is what happens on one of those dates. I'm in the first row. I may have still brought my glove, although I don't think I did, um, being 16, by myself, first row, left field, and um taking batting practice were the Pirates and the aforementioned John Cangelosi. Now, we did 1996, and I mentioned that we chatted up John Cangelosi then as a member of the Astros days after he was involved in a huge brawl uh, precipitated by Danny Darwin uh, and Jeff Juden, where Jeff Juden was a pitcher for the Expos, and he hit Cangelosi, and Cangelosi charged them out and actually somehow managed to pick up Juden and dump him like in a WrestleMania move. And I was calling Cangelosi Rocky then, and he was playing up to it, and we were having fun with Danny Darwin. It was a good time, but that was in 96. In 88, Cangelosi at this point had already been a flame-out opening day center fielder for the White Sox. Uh, he would be very much like Doug DeCenzo, who, uh, you know, short Italian-American, left-hander, as we learned. Um, but here's what happened in 88. Sitting next to me in the front row in the left field bleachers was uh, a young couple, a few years older than me, early 20s, mid 20s, uh, you know, guy and his girlfriend. And the girlfriend had a little bit of like a halter top on. And she was, we were both sort of, you know, she was kind of getting Cangelosi's attention. I'm just like, trying to get anyone's attention that might throw a ball up and just soak in the atmosphere. And uh, at some point, Cangelosi kind of started, you know, he, he got the girl, the girl got his attention. And she was asking for a ball, and and you know, let's say negotiations kind of began. And at one point, she started teasing, you know, pulling down her top. And all I'm going to say is that I was looking straight to my left at her because I'm 16, I'm a loser, I'm not getting anywhere. Oh my God, I'm this close to a girl about to show her breast in the bleachers mm-hmm. at Wrigley. And as that's happening, I see out of the corner of my eye a ball about to hit me in the face. And I turn, I throw my hands up, 
and I catch the ball, John Cangelosi. And I realized years later, I think Cangelosi was looking to have a laugh and get the 16 year old, uh, you know, drooling pubescent uh, teenager to basically uh, get caught, you know, trying to grab a look while he's throwing the ball uh, at my face. Luckily my instincts pulled in. I pulled back in time and got the ball to Cangelosi, but uh, those were, uh, those were interesting times in the bleachers. I'll leave it at that. I almost got a, a, I almost got a, a show and instead went home with the baseball. <laughs> so I don't know what I was just looking. I don't, I don't exactly know which of the games it was, but there was a June series, late June series between the Cubs and the Mets that uh, I went to where I got the, my famous uh, Tim Tuffle, the Tim Tuffle ball, my Tim Tuffle ball. And what I remember about the game was two things. Number one, my, we walked in, it was my dad and me and my friend Danny. And uh, we walked in at the top of the bleachers and we heard a ball hit the true link fence. And Danny ran over and grabbed it. And it was an Andre Dawson batting practice home run. Just walks in the freaking thing, and there it is. Um, so I remember thinking there was no way in hell that I, you know, it's like, well, fine, you got a ball. You got, well, I ended up with one, too. But what I also remember is that in the game, uh, Daryl Strawberry, playing right field for the Mets, um, managed to let a fly ball go over his head for a double. Yep. And Danny and I got the Daryl chance yep. started. You got it started. Yes, we were very proud of that. We started immediately, and the drunken Bleacher fans were more than happy yes. to uh, get it going. And poor Daryl standing there, slumped. When uh, when we talk 1984, I, I'm going to have a story about participating. What I feel is one of the earliest ever Daryl chants. Um, but yeah, that's good time. Now, interestingly, the that would probably have been that weekend that Jeff Pico threw his second shutout against the Mets. I'm, you know, uh, the, the late late June. The next time the Mets came to town, and this was not mentioned uh, earlier, and it's probably we, we should. We're probably definitely going to spend some time discussing this historic fact, but uh, the Mets came back in town in August and would participate against the Cubs in the first ever night game to ever take place at Wrigley Field. And I only bring up that game because. I don't remember what uh, date that was. Does anybody remember what date that was? <laughs> the anniversary's coming up. It, of course, is August 9th, right? But most Cub fans have to sort of do some math when they yes. figure it out. Because 88, they, they drug that yeah, poor old guy out a, to hit the plunger. Let there was, be lights. His name was Harry Grossman, Andy. And I believe Marquis, over the All-Star break, uh, replayed the broadcast of the truncated, the rained-out game. Because this is back when the Cubs knew how to have fun. The entire broadcast was Harry Carey, Steve Stone, and Bill Murray. And a Not lot of like other... Bill didn't breeze by the booth for a half inning. Bill was just there and really funny. Like, uh, right? You know, it's he laid out when he didn't have any, and you know, he he it was. I've, I've watched lo- much longer of that than I intended to, just because it's like, all right, this is a guy being this is an actual Cub fan who is one of the funniest people around, who mm-hmm. knows when to talk and when to just let Harry and Steve do the game. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Hopefully they'll do the same with Jeff Garland sometime. That'd be great. I, I oh, Jesus. I, but now, <laughs> now that you mentioned that, I do not remember. There was also a, a rotating cast of other celebrities, and I only remember that because my dad started getting really annoyed because at some point it's like, why the fuck is Dabney Coleman 
in the booth. And he was like, he was. And I know this happened. He looked it up. And Dad be called, but give him credit. He's a baseball fan. He happened to be in Chicago. And I remember he was like distracted by the game and pointing out that he's trying to follow the Dodgers game because this young Ramon Martinez that we've been hearing about is taking the bump for the Dodgers. Of course, Ramon, not uh, Dusty's little pet middle infielder, right. Ramon, but Pedro's big Pedro's brother, brother, who yeah. seemed to have been a much hot, much more highly touted prospect i feel like at least is evidenced by dabney coleman's tout on 8888 oh, yeah. um, um to tommy lasorda pedro was always just ramon's little brother and it was going to be way too little and frail to be a good big league pitcher which is why they traded him to the expos that was lasorda was like yeah we don't, he's not gonna make it yeah hall, hall of famer pedro Martinez. <laughs> yeah and i go tommy you prick yeah, good move, Tommy. Um, so, yeah, but there were a lot of festivity. Mike Royko wrote one of his more memorable articles. About, I mean, there was just so much excitement. It's great. I mean, again, everyone, even like if you're 22 and listening to this, I know there are a couple of you, you know the history, but it does sometimes make me pause to think like how strange it was that for like four goddamn decades, because, you know, once Cincinnati's Crossley Field got lights in what, like 1938? Within like ten years, everybody except Wrigley Field fell. You know, uh, well, you know, famous story about they had, they the Cubs the would have been one of the it. first. They yep. were gonna they were gonna put them up, and then the war started. And I believe that is actually not apocryphal. And PK but, donated the uh, to the war effort. They probably made some. I don't know. They made a battle cruiser or a, some bombs. Yeah, uh, it's like okay, guys, uh, war is over. He probably could go with the light thing now. Ah, screw it. Yeah, yeah. So as early as 1948, being the only, you know, they, it was a no, they were a novelty. I mean, into the 50s, I, I, and I think 48. I'm just plucking that, but I'm pretty sure by 1950, for sure, every team had lights. Maybe some had traditions, local home rule. They couldn't play games in certain day, night games in certain days, but for the most part, uh, you're dealing with a major league ballpark that for 50, 60, for 30, or oh, 38, almost 40 years. Uh, had this unique feature where all 81 home games were played during the day. Now, as kids growing up in the 70s and 80s, and certainly in 88, when that finally changed, it was, um, you know, essential. It was, you know, it, it was uh, a big part of us. It was a great benefit. You know, you spend your summers, you go to the pool, you come back, you play some pickup ball, whatever. The game's always on. You catch a few innings, you watch the whole game. Uh, it's part of the reason the Cubs caught on nationwide, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But of course, it's, you know, probably not that uh, helpful to you, you know, strategically when, you know, you're playing in the hot Chicago summers constantly. Although the 84 Cubs did seem to turn that against their opponents. Nevertheless, it just, uh, th that, could not last forever. And it was really one of Dallas Green's, you know, he recognized that early on and he didn't play that card early on and people were already paranoid about it. But sure enough, he did bring lights to Wrigley Field and uh and is what he was gone by the yeah. time it happened. Already That's got, how long already it already gotten fired before the lights went up. <laughs> he was needed. So two, even things there. That, two things that caught my attention about that the broadcast from uh, August eighth, nineteen eighty eight was how fat Rick Sutcliffe was. And <laughs> Steve Stone talking about how Rick has been battling back problems. And you're looking at him like, well, gee, I wonder why. He looks like Rick Russell, not Rick Sutcliffe. And uh, one of, and then realizing that Murray was still there was he, uh, they showed uh, Commissioner A. Bartlett Giamatti 
and commissioner. So this is the brief window in time when he was. The, I think he was NL president. You sure he was commissioner? All right. Oh wait, eighty-eight. Yeah, I think he was commissioner in eighty-eight. I think it was. He was not commissioner for long. He was NL president for long. He, he was, was commissioner, commissioner. eighty-eight and eighty-nine. Okay, so Bub Roth was on the way out. Okay, and um, Bill goes, "Hey," he goes, "Oh, he's here." He goes. Is is Bowie Coon here? He goes. Is he still trying to give away our playoff game, our home playoff games? Which is not true, but no, yes, it's not true. In fact, the uh, Bowie had to rule that they they would they did not change the playoff. Um, yeah. We've talked about it. In- That's one of those uh, apocryphal things that has caught on, and Bill, you know, was perpetrating. I think we all believe that to be true in '88, but. The Cubs did not lose home field advantage in the NLCS in 84 because they didn't have lights, but they would have faced punishment in 85 if they didn't yeah. not have played games at Wrigley Field. And I think you said... Well, maybe, uh, actually, maybe I should give, maybe I need to give Murray credit. Maybe what he said, maybe he was looking for Uberoth. Because that, Uberoth did give it, but it didn't, it didn't matter because... Right, because Kuhn became, was on his way out in Yeah, Bowie yeah. was done at the well, end of the 84 season, and Uberoth had just uh, wrapped up the... The 1984 Olympics. Olympics, the first Olympics, supposedly to make money. I'm sure they really didn't. Um, and took over as commissioner. And he was there in 85. He was the one who, you know, when the Cubs were cruising along in June, as we talked about Before the last 13th week, everybody was worried right. about, oh, shit, they're going to make the playoffs yeah. again, and they don't have lights, and they're going to fuck up our national TV thing. He was going to make them. Where did, we, where did you say they had to go to St. Louis to play? Bush Stadium, not even Comiskey. They wanted to do a National League park, the closest National League park. And the Brewers were still in the American League. Oh, can you imagine that? I know. Nice that the Cubs rendered that moot, I suppose, <laughs> by virtue of the 13-game losing streak. On that streak, awful, but... self-aggrandizing um, documentary, which debuted about a year ago, right? They did it. They, the Cubs. Which one? About, the Cubs. The one they made. The Cubs patting themselves on the back for renovating Wrigley Field. I don't know if you remember oh, that yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they give I themselves do. credit for. Um, because of the way they structured the uh, remodeling that under their original plan in 2016, they would have been playing games either in Milwaukee or at oh. U S Comiscular, but they won the world series playing their home games in Wrigley because they like, oh fuck off. Like you, nobody really would have been, would have been the dumbest thing ever to have actually abandoned the park for an entire season. Don't, don't give us that shit. That's right. The reason people thought that was going to happen is the Cubs were floating it so that they would seem like, honestly, I'm sure it was a way to make fans bitch less about the inconveniences of the park being torn up while they were in it. It's, hey, we could, how'd you like? We could be up in Milwaukee right now playing our home games. How'd you like that? Yeah. That's just their typical shit. Uh, so uh, was it Phil Bradley? Is that who with the home yep. run? Lead off homer. And then Ryan answered with a yep. homer. And then it none, was of, that, the, none of that counted. It got washed away, and then celebrity interviews, and then like Maddox and Jody might have still been on the Cubs. He got traded late to Atlanta. I think we went over that. He got traded like oh, September who did the tarp sliding. Is that what you're? Yeah, yeah, the, tar- the tarp sliding. Um, yeah. I did. I know it was it was Maddox, and it was Lester Lacknaster, and I think it was probably Nipper because that's just the kind of guy he was. Sure, sure. And it really pissed um, Brian Zimmer off. It did. Yeah. God forbid anybody have any fun. Yeah. What if they got hurt? Yeah. Well, he'd still, well, fin- he'd still finish in fourth. 
So the the reason I, I do want to I do want to spend a minute to go over the game the next day the the, the true official night and so yeah I mean and just to put it to rest there was so much national hope law and obviously we know it now we see it now with the Cubs every now and then but it was like like we're talking like Letterman national news it was it was a as you can imagine an epochal event and then the irony of it getting washed out uh, but as a result we still remember eight eight eighty eight. But then eight nine eighty eight, the Mets come to town, and then it just so happened that NBC had gotten into line to get you know what they thought originally was the second uh, ever night game, and because of the previous night's rainout, would be the first. And so a rare weeknight NBC game of the week type production broadcast with good old Vince Scully and Joe Garagiola coming to town, and I like to reference this game because. Kids, you can find it in its entirety on YouTube, or at least you could as recently as a year ago. And when you can, Cubs won. Uh, the Mets would, would, by the way, win their second division, but lose the Dodgers. The playoffs, the Mets are like very good year in and year out. We discussed that when we talked about 85. Uh, but fast forward to about the sixth or seventh or eighth inning. And I don't know if it's Barry Hill or who hits a deep drive to right center, and uh, Mets center fielder Lenny Dykstra. Uh, gets to the wall, gets to the ivy, and as he, he doesn't get the ball, hits the vines, and then uh, in a perfectly timed moment, gets about two or three beers, it seems, poured right on top of him. Which he probably enjoyed. He probably, yes, may have given him some withdrawal. It didn't make but, him smell worse, I can tell you that. No doubt. Yeah, he's so, still, to this day, through all of his missing teeth, he still bitches about the lights at Wrigley. Well, it, they were antiquated, remember? Like, like, I, I was watching a game the other day from the eighties, a night game. I don't know what, what it was, but it's funny how dark like the stands were. Well, like they only had so lights. It used to be, it used to be true that there were only two stadiums in baseball that didn't have lights in the outfield. And that was Yankee stadium and Wrigley field. They both have the lights ring the top of the grandstand and shine out and on TV, because when they shoot from behind home plate out, the, you're like the light is being like thrown in front. Everything's backlit, and so the bleachers always look dark as shit. Mm-hmm. They still, still do because right. they still don't have lights in the outfield. And because the new bleachers. Yankee Stadium has lights all over it, so really mm-hmm. is the only the only park that doesn't have. And they didn't know how they were honestly. They were still testing that shit. They were still repointing lights because there were because uh, it's uh, only it's only the second time they ever played a game out there. So. Well, eight seven eighty eight was like a sort of like another. Uh, there's a lot of buildup, of course. I mean, the city council passed it in February. Like it, it all kind of happened in the previous year. But uh, on eight seven eighty eight, they had like a VIP probably for season ticket holders. So my cousin may have gone because he had he had the tickets then. Uh, but it was like a batting practice and like you know hobnobbing and like VIPs. And I remember Andre Dawson like this was after the exhibition on August seventh, the, the night before, and kind of talk like and so they were still adjusting on the fly like particular bulbs within light light stands to make sure because there were blind spots on the field. There were you know it was uh, it was far from perfect. And I think the other thing too is you're right that without having the uh, the lights, you know, outside of the ringing of the bleachers that you know, backlit the stands, they didn't have like the stands themselves were not really that wired for any of that sort of it. Would, they would eventually, I'm sure they retro, you know, nowadays it's a lot more well lit, I think, but it, <laughs> it always, even for night games, had unique videos. It was beautiful at night, and I, you know, it's a beautiful park, blah, blah, blah. 
I will say to this day, they played a day game today, and I would love to have been there because to me there's still nothing better than a weekday afternoon game at Wrigley made more intriguing by the fact that they're extremely rare now. That's Most weekday games, non-holidays, are going to be Thursday outside of the Friday, which itself is a tradition that remains. Uh, but the nights, they were beautiful. It was weird and a little dark and creepy, but there was, you know, the, Wrigley was, you know, it, it wasn't like, like Soldier Field when you put a you know a spaceship on top of the colony. They really somehow kept things continuous, let's say. Not that I'm any sort of an architectural maven, but. Yeah, you'd, you'd really like to see the Cubs not fuck up the home Friday thing. Um, I like that. Day games at Wrigley are still. The Yankees king. play as much as possible, play day games on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a holdover from George. He thought weekend games should always be during the day. And so, um, it, you know, the Yankees are home. If they're, you know, hop in your car and flip on XM radio at like noon and there, and there's a game, it's going to be them. Cause they, they're nice. the only yeah, most the Cubs have a home game and then they follow right along. Right. And the Sox, I noticed, played a day game last Saturday. I think that's a little bit of an exception to some of the Sox. Like they have night games and fireworks. Most teams, I think, probably more than half, most teams have more Saturday games at night than during the day. So Yankees and Cubs are, would be the exception there. And the other thing is when they, you know, what the Cubs have now is kind of in line now. They almost play as many night games as other teams elect to do, even with the Friday. The Friday pro- self-prohibition is, you know, accounts for one of the variances. But in the beginning, in 88, when it was approved and they were getting those lights up in February and March, they were only going to have eight games that year. And then the agreement was between 1989 and, I don't know, for about eight years or 10 years, only 18 games. And so... Uh, to get to the point they're at now has been pretty incremental and it went from eight to 18 to like 28. And now it's a lot more of a semblance to it's still percentage wise less than any other ballpark. As far as Nike, my, my little bit of free advice to the current regime is that if they're going to continue to put a shitty team on the field, they probably ought to up the number of day games because the tourists like the day games. And that's who you're going to be trying to sell uh, tickets to unless you actually uh, start to win some games. Especially, yeah, I don't know how many tourists are there in April. The problem with that ballpark day or night is anywhere in the Midwest or April games. But I can think of fewer, more depressing places to be, uh, frankly, even if the team's good sometimes, than uh, a weeknight game in April. (laughs) I'd rather go to a Bears game in December because at least I, you know, more psychologically with it, but. And I went to my first night game in 88. It was against the Mets, but it was not that serious. They came back in September and the Cubs beat the Mets again, um, which would have, whatever, I don't think, I don't think it was the walk-off. It must have been. I don't remember it being a walk-off, but I'm sure that was a night game on September 7th. So uh, mark that one. I, I, I don't remember the first Cubs game I ever went to because I'm sure I was being dragged to games before I could remember. But I do remember the first night game I went to was against the Mets uh, in 88. And it was a walk-off. I just didn't remember that. I remember the walk off the next year when Rick Rona suicide squeezed, but that was uh, different. So I went to my first two Cubs Mets Knights games were both Cubs walk off wins. I should have gone to more of those. That's a good question. I wonder when my first night game was. I bet it was probably by. I was probably after I got to college. Eighty nine, ninety, or ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah, you didn't have a lot of opportunity in the early years because there were only eighteen. 
And I'm sure those first couple of years, demand was high. Well, yeah, and, and, it's a, and it's a pain in the ass. Feel about and it's a pain in the ass, especially when the neighborhood day games were easier. Well, and I know this because my brothers, as I said, moved to that neighborhood. They had to get like parking passes because that was the first time you'd ever see neighborhood restrictions in 88, where it used to be like whatever, like you park wherever, unless there's like a bus lane on Irving Park or whatever. And then all of a sudden, oh, we got lights. Uh, Well, I drive my car to Oakbrook and come back to my Lakeview apartment and I need a parking spot. And so uh the neighborhood uh put up that permit parking which says you cannot park on these side streets at night unless you have you know a city sticker and a permit so i remember my brothers had to scramble to get permits they i remember the night the first night game was a damn circus as you can imagine because with even with all the preparation it was like you know it was just just kind of anarchy but you know they figured it out and i can still go to night games to this day and not pay for parking but i've got my secrets i'm not going to publicize them so through some quick googling here, I can tell you that I, I was not my first night game, but I went to a uh, I went to a rare Saturday night night game at Wrigley Field in 1996. It was June against 9th. the Phillies. It was the Cubs and the Expos, oh, and the reason I remember it was because the fog rolled in, and for where we were sitting, we couldn't see Sammy in right field. We were like sitting down, kind of. <laughs> up behind the first base dugout. And that's how foggy it was. We just kept waiting for there to be a fog delay and there never was. Wow. Just played through it. And apparently Harry, as you'd be shocked to know, had a little trouble. (laughs) He couldn't see what the hell was going on. So there's an article here by Bill Jouse. um, Oh, Jousey. Talking about how foggy it was. Foggy enough that fans perceived by home plate could not read the center field scoreboard. Uh, Sammy lost a Mike Lansing pop-up, and it went for an RBI double. I remember that. Um, in the sixth inning, they had a delay while Cubs coach Mako Oliveras hit fungos to the outfielders to see if they could see the ball. Luis Gonzalez caught one, and the game went on. Uh, Brian McRae said he couldn't see the ball for four innings. <laughs> uh, you were at that game. I have no recollection of that game. Yeah, I was there. The Cubs, I believe they won. That's I missed this in the very beginning. Yeah, Cubs won six to four. Amari Telemaco pitched for the Cubs. Oh, did you get the W? Uh let's see. Because Amari didn't get that many. He made his debut in ninety six, I'm pretty sure, but uh, Mark Gray had drove in three runs in the pitching of 22-year-old Maury Telemaco. The Cubs beat the Expo six to four and fog so dense, made an ordinary pop-up an adventure. Um Yep, Telemaco won. It was his third win of the year. And, oh, how about this? The losing pitcher for the Expos? Pedro Martinez. Jeff good. Ah, oh, pay- wow. Amari outdueled. The- right. And Amari Proving- got screwed by uh, Sammy losing a pop-up in the fog. He still beat Pedro. He overcame that. Proving uh, Tommy was sort of right, too. Yeah. yeah, Tommy's like, trade this fucker. He can't pitch in the fog. Um... I, I was going down the quick rabbit hole to just confirm. I do not remember a fellow by the name of Herm Starrett, who apparently oh, was I the remember. Cubs pitching, I remember Cubs pitching, pitching coach. coach Herm Do you really? Yep. He was up there in the one season pitching coach. Uh, so he was Maddox's 15-3 and three pitching coach. He, um, that's it. He would have been one year like the great uh, Marty Demerit. Nice. Which, 
game much. Ten years One and done. Years later, eight years because later. the year the year before, there's Billy Connors who was in with Fry, and he was not ushered out with Fry, so he he hung on with, um, well, I guess Stick Michael for the rest of that season. But yeah, by the next season, uh, Stick had replaced it with Hermstar. God, I don't remember Hermstar. Right? I'm impressed that you do. I remember the and name. Then, I couldn't tell you what he looked like. I'm, and so yeah, to, to answer the a tall the, goof with glasses, but. But yeah, Dick Pole, it was his first season. I think Herm uh, was a pitching coach maybe for the Ex- Expos first. Yeah, now now I'm starting to think I might remember the name for elsewhere. Not as the Cubs, though. Let's see here. Herm Starrett. Been dead since June 2nd, 2017. At least he lived to see the Cubs win the World Series. Uh, came to the Cubs from the Brewers. As a coach. Uh, you're on some sort of baseball coaching reference.com. I can't find the coaches. Well, I Googled Herm Starrett and his Wikipedia page. Okay. He had been a pitching coach for the Braves, the Giants, the Phillies, the Brewers, the Cubs, and then after the Cubs, the Orioles, and then he was a bullpen coach for the Red Sox. I love it. Absolute baseball He was lifer. succeeded. Um, no, he was the Cub pitch coach in 87. Yep. Okay. Succeeded by, Dick, Dick, by so Dick, Pohl. Dick Pohl. was the 88 pitching coach. Okay. He was. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's right. You were looking at who Gene Michaels' pitching coach was. I was trying to bridge a gap between the rotund Billy Connors. Yeah. Billy Connors came back, by the way. Yes, which I know that, that I didn't imagine that. But between Billy Connors and Dick Pohl, there was a Herm star. I, I, can, I can rest easy now, Andy. Yeah. Billy, was, sure. Billy was a big boy with the Cubs the first time. But I remember when he came back. Shoot. Stay, we're talking stay puffed. Uh, I remember my dad so, asking. It's like Because he would always wear like that windbreaker. He's like, do you think they even have a jersey big enough for him? I remember I had the same joke about um, uh, Chris Bazio never wore his jersey. And I was like, do you think Bazio knows what number he is? <laughs> like, if you ask him, does he have any idea what number he is? He doesn't put that fucking jersey. He puts the jersey on for picture day and never puts it on again. And he wasn't that big. He was big, but he just didn't want to wear Bazio wasn't. No, Bazio was like, what the hell do I need to wear a jersey for? I'm not pitching. Yeah. I'm going to wear this thing. No, it's more but, comfy. But Billy, Billy Connors. I want pockets. Billy Con- but he wasn't that fat. Like you said, Billy Connors part due was, yeah. A little, yeah, he was huge. Pretty big. Um, so he was, he was troubling. It looked like, uh, it was. It looked like John McSherry. Just about right. It's speaking of Riverfront Stadium in opening days. Um, in the end, 1996. So you, we referenced one of Jim Fry's most horrific trades, which was really not done with any ulterior motive in mind or any political cover. It was just absolute baseball incompetence, and it bit him in the ass, and it propelled him. It, it compelled him for future trades to basically com- that yeah. compounded the mistake. It was, it was a good old-fashioned terrible trade. But he made another trade during the season in '88, which uh, shipped off. The guy who looked like he was a very seamless uh, center field transition from Bob Dernier, who had a very nice season in 1987, which we'll go more in depth because the wheel hasn't yet spun on 87. Uh, But what it does, we'll see one of Dallas Green's first real true products after Sean Dunstan, uh, Dave Martinez, who suddenly, honestly, I'm just speaking, when I remember this happened in early 88, I was 16, I was probably not as so obsessed about the Cubs as maybe I was a couple years earlier. I was at that awkward age where I had a few interests, but I was following them extremely closely and remember being kind of puzzled. Why would we just deal Dave Martinez for Mitch Webster? And 
I don't know. Sometimes I still ask that question. I remember we went to some games in 87, and I remember there were one of the hot selling items were buttons with Dave Martinez's picture on it. Because yeah. the ladies liked like the look of a young Good looking Dave kid. Martinez. Dude, he was 20. Apparently, they yep. sold at least one of those buttons to one of the wives of one of the players. Get out. Maybe she didn't wear a button on her chest. She may have just worn Dave. Um, yeah. But seriously, Dave Martinez in 1987. And I didn't. I would not. In my wildest memory have actually rosy colored memory of thought he did this well. But in 142 games, 520 plate appearances. I remember him coming up and playing every day and thinking, okay, he had a 459 uh, at bats. He had a 790 OPS. I'm just going to jump to the OPS for Christ's sake. He batted 292. He had a 372 on base. The guy was pre money ball, money ball, and a 418 slugging, pretty goddamn good, especially in an era. Uh, I know he was in a shortstop, but center fielders weren't exactly known for power. Um, I don't even think that I, – I think I failed to appreciate Dave Martinez even in his own time in 1987. I have no idea how he didn't get rookie of the year votes. Well, I'm, I, you could see why he'd be expendable, though. I mean, the long line of great Cubs center fielders, they were loaded with guys. So, you know, it's just – and and the the trade was clearly with the future in mind. They traded him for the uh, young. Oh no, he was older. Um, but you know, Bass. Mitch Mitch was a switch hitter, and that's what they really that's needed. Right. They were they, they the needed right more side. switch hitting. They didn't need yeah. no. It wasn't just that was Fry had identified. You know, what we need we need more. We need another switch hitter. Right. For a team that had a switch hitting catcher, yeah. they still needed another switch hitter. Yeah. And so it goes. And that was pretty – was that the straight-up trade, by the way? Did, did Jim Fry not even, like, like, like call a bluff? Like, did whoever he was running the Ellis Expos – Valentine or somebody? He, he was already long gone with the Mets, but, like, I don't know who his counterpart was. It John McHale? Like, uh, did he know that, that Fry may have been compromised or, like, had to sell low – how did was there not another prospect in there? And when I look at it and I straight see up. that it was straight up, I just in a wit Mitch Webster was the opening day left fielder in '89. Um, quickly replaced by Roy oh, yeah, McClendon the, and Dwight Smith. The '89 Cubs, the starting outfield, immediately fell apart physically. <laughs> they had three, they, that's how we got Jerome Walton and Dwight Smith in the lineup now, every day. I will say that if I actually were to give Jim Fry any credit, you could say, wow, he knew we had Jerome Walton. By the way, Jerome Walton was not at anyone's radar. I already said that Dwight Smith and Mark Grace were, and Mike Harkey was a first-round pick. Jerome Walton kind of came out of nowhere. However, uh, I'm also not inclined to think that Jim Fry was savvy enough to recognize that. I'm sure Jerome Walton's Rookie of the Year campaign the following year just fell right into that fucking Mr. Yeah, it was all fueled by the 30-game history. Was it all though? I mean, the guy was a go. No, I mean, the third, he put up numbers during that streak. The, you know, it, uh, we've seen that. You know, but he was a really good rookie of the year. Too. You have good good stats, and then if you have some other like hook, I mean, he had a good year, and everybody's like, "Oh, that's yeah. the guy with the thirty game history." I'm about for him. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I haven't actually looked up. I mean, yeah, his numbers were numbers. good enough to warrant winning rookie of the year. There's no doubt about Walton's it. Walton's were. Yeah. Well, fuck, yeah, Dave Martinez's numbers would seem to warrant getting some votes, but I don't see any, so... 293, well, actually, given what we know now, Jerome would not have won the Rookie of the Year if he if he had this season this year. 293 batting average. Yep. 335 on base. 
Uh, crazy for not three eighty-five slugs. We didn't yeah, get on base. Okay. And he didn't hit for any power. But he, he wasn't stole, above average. Uh, he stole twenty-four bases, and he had a yeah. thirty-game hit streak. And, and I, he played I on he a division champion, which factors more for MVP yeah. and Sonny Young than Rookie of the Year. Let's see. Supposedly. Did, let's see. That was great. We're talking about this in the eight-nine, but why not? Um, We've already done eight-nine. We may have missed it before. And I will just say while you look it up that Walton was uh, he made an error on opening day and then went like 120 games without another. He was a very good defensive center fielder. Which so we know who finished. We know who finished second rookie of the year voting in '89 or '88. '89. Dwight Smith. Dwight Smith. So for the second year in a row, the Cubs had the second place finisher. For as I said, and they, it, had, they had the first place. Right. This guy. Well, as I tried to say, maybe ineloquently, they would also have the second place finisher in nineteen ninety. In the, Mike Harkey, the runaway favorite for the award going into the season, finished third. He had been a playoff hero in '88, and he didn't have enough uh, games played to qualify, so he got to be a rookie again in '89. Do you remember who that was? Greg Jeffries? Greg Jeffries of the Mets, who everyone thought was going to be a superstar. Uh, yeah, he had vo- he got votes in 88 and 89, but he didn't technically qualify. He still technically qualified as a rookie in 89. Yeah, well, you can win it twice, I guess. Um, I guess. Right. Do you remember who uh, – oh, now I'm looking at 89. So that's, that's for a different time. We're I'm hoping for that. Move over Archie Griffin. I want to I want to find the but first two-time – That brings up a good point. I want to see now how close did the far inferior – um, Chris Sabo come. Help yeah, me. well, we're Sabo's number. I just know, you know, he looked like, you know, Spuds McKenzie was a thing. Sabo got 11 first place votes and Mark Grace got seven. Okay, that was close. Um, well, wow. Sabo had a much higher war. He had a 5.1 war. He hit 271. Grace hit 296. He had a 314 on base. Grace 371. He had a 414 slug. Grace had 403. Grace had a higher OPS. Um, Sabo hit 11 homers and drove in 44 runs. Grace, seven homers and drove in 57 runs. So, what accounts Sabo for the different reward? 46 bases. I didn't know that. Wait, what? They both what? Did you say stole 46 bases? Sabo you say? stole 46 bases. In his career? No, in that season. Oh. So there's that and the and fact was, that he probably was a good glove man. At, yes, at he was an excellent glove man. We also know Mark Grace was one of the best. Correct, but third base is probably a little more critical. I mean, they're, they're critical in different ways. I I don't know if that still accounts for the vast difference in war, but fine. Wasn't enough that Chris Sable could play in the All-Star game in his home stadium as a rookie. He had to also take home the rookie of the year. So he stole 46 bases. In 89, he got hurt. He only played 82 games. He stole 14. He stole 25 and 90. He was an all-star. And a World Series champ. He stole 19 and 91, and he was an all-star. And, and he ended up as a White Sox in like Pretty much dropped off the cliff after that. Yeah, he played for the White Sox in 95, but only 20 games. And he played for the Cardinals in 95 on that hilarious dog shit uh, Cardinal team. that Mike Jorgensen. Was trading away uh, stars like Todd Zeal. And uh, he returned to Cincinnati for his final season at 34. And so Grace had a had a better career. So up yours, Chris Sable. Yeah. Let's see. Did any Cubs get MVP votes in 1988? I bet you Sandberg probably got a couple. Uh, one Cub. No. One Cub got 
Maddox. Six votes. Andre Dawson. Oh. Coming off of oh. his MVP season. And yeah. Somebody threw him a sixth place vote or whatever. Somewhat um, historical season he was coming off of. Yeah, it was only Hawks' second year. He but he already owned right field. He, he owned part. He played 157 games. He had 303, but he had 24 homers and 79 RBIs. So huge. Jeez, jump on that's a lot of games. Go easy on those knees, yeah. Zim. He had some depth, right? He got Palmero up in left well, field. This was the yeah. 88 Cubs, the same team that kept pumping Maddox out there for extra innings because yeah. their bullpen was terrible, and then he burned out. Uh, let's see, Cy Young. Because I wonder if Greg hung on to get any. He did not. He sh- no, really. Well, the God, Cy Young. Um, actually, this was a pretty good. Uh, this is a Wait, pretty let good me guess. The they, Cy Young award the right was Oral Hertzheiser. Yes. Right. Oral. Oral had set the uh, had broken Don Drysdale's uh, consecutive scoreless inning streak. Like like during a pennant stretch yeah. too, but during like down in September. Right, and then we remember he. He was ridiculous in the playoffs in the World Series. Came came out of the bullpen. He won a game, saved a game. He was just he was absolutely. It's one. It's one of the most. I saw something on HBO or ESPN like a couple of years ago. It, it's it's worth a look if you haven't seen. Just or Oral Hershiser, not a Hall of Famer. I don't think. I'm sure he didn't deserve to be, but uh, the eighty just the eighty eight season alone. Um, pretty. Okay, so ridiculous. I'm gonna I'm not gonna tell you who it is, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the comparison between the first place Cy Young voter. Uh, vote getter which was oral and the second place guy so uh oral won 23 games the guy who finished second won 23 games oral lost eight games the guy who finished second also lost eight games oral's era was 226 this guy was 273 they both tied for the league with 15 complete games um oral threw eight shutouts this guy threw six Oh my god. Oral had a save. This guy didn't. Oral threw 267 innings. The guy who finished second, 260 and two thirds innings. Oral gave up 208 hits. This guy gave up 206. Um, Goodness. uh, Let's see. What else? I have a guess, but I don't think it's right. One guy had the Oral had 178 strikeouts. This guy had 161. Uh, Oral faced 1,068 batters. That led the league. This guy finished, faced 1,034. Oral's ERA was 149. This guy's was 132. So who finished second? It's not, is, it Doug, is it Doc Gooden? It is not. It is a uh, future Cub. Danny Jackson? It's Danny Jackson. He basically matched Oral pitch for pitch. Holy shit. In 1988. That's a story for the day for the for, for the Reds. Red. Yep. Wow. And he would cash that in a couple of years later. Yeah, he sure would. Yeah, we would come pay the price awful, for that. Come be awful for the Cubs. Yes. That's probably would usher, they pitched would usher in. Would basically, he'd be, he, would literally, he would literally be the nail in Jim Fry's coffin. Lou Pinella was know. out there just telling him to keep throwing. Everything's fine. That's incredible. In 88, Danny Jackson was that. You know, we... Ran, went over Danny Jackson's numbers when we talked about him recently, and I guess I didn't realize um, how. I mean, I still say Hershiser, which is incredible, just probably because of the way that he finished. But well, there you go, Danny Jackson. He was almost as good for the. I was in, for the '92 Cubs. Well, let's see. He came to the Cubs in '91. He was one and five with a 6.75 ERA and 17 starts. In '92. He made 19 starts. He was four and nine. <laughs> and they got traded for Steve Bouchelle. Yeah. Uh, so you know who the Reds manager was in '88? Oh, so it wasn't it wasn't Lou yet. It was no. Uh, Lou won it all in his first year. 
and ninety. Oh, that's right. So eighty-eight. Who managed Danny Jackson to this epic season? And the follow-up question is, how much money do you think he won as a result? Oh, Pete Rose. <laughs> Pete Rose. That's right. I forget. That's who Lou succeeded. He did. Well, I was, thinking, was, there, was there anybody in between? Did Rose get – I forget when Rose – No. Got, so uh, well, so Rose, Rose got vanquished in like August of 89. Yeah, so this was the interim. Yeah, and then they brought in Pinnell in a clean house, and they won it all. And it was not a bad team. And, you know, it's funny, not that I expected to go here – Pete Rose was not actually, if you look at the numbers, the worst manager. He was brought on as a, he's the last player manager in our lifetime. The first since Don Kessinger of the Sox. He actually made his debut against the Cubs. He was chasing Ty Cobb's record. So it was a little bit of a sort of a circus show. Um, he, uh, he, you know, he makes his debut as a player. He comes back from the Expos uh, two months after hitting a ball off of Lee Smith's ass that Dave Owen caught out of the air and ended up in a, 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 a iconic Cubs game-ending double play. And he goes back to Cincinnati where he had played before you and I could remember him because our first memory of Pete Rose, no doubt, was as a member of the Phillies. But he, of course, made his mark with his hometown Reds. And he comes home, and he's the manager, the player manager. And he, he played a lot in 84-85. But, yeah, he deba- debuted against the Cubs. Uh, and then he was the manager in 85, 86, 87, 80. He was a manager like almost as long as any Cubs manager had been in their lifetime. And the Reds were not really ever shitty. I mean, Tom Browning was not a rookie of the year in 88, but he was the first player to win 20, pitcher to win 20 games since Bob Grimm in 1954 for the New York Yankees. Uh, and obviously Danny Jackson. They, so the Reds had two 20-game winners. I don't know why they weren't even more competitive. Maybe because maybe, you know, Pete was pulling the reins on the proverbial horse at some junctures of the season, whatever. But the Reds are not terrible. Rose's managerial record is not terrible. Uh, but he was run out the following year, and they obviously had a good nucleus. I mean, Barry Larkin, there's another guy. I mean, they had some players in 88. Uh, and they won it all in 90, and it wasn't a fluke. Um, you know, they did upset a overwhelming favorite Oakland A's team. But, uh, you know, even without Billy Hatcher's Cosmic production. Uh, that Red Sea was pretty good, and they were mostly together in '88. So, okay. So you remember this? So the '88. I was looking um, because you look at Pete Rose's managerial record, and he the Reds finished second a lot under him. But what caught my eye was in 1988. He was you know they show how how many managers there were. Ninety and '89. He was the first of two managers. Because during the season, he got suspended for life, and Tommy Helms mm-hmm. took over for him. But in, in 1988, he was listed as the first of three managers and the third of three managers. Is that the year he, in which he bumped Dave Pallone? Yeah, he got the suspended guy, for 30 games in the middle of the season. I was, you remember the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? What it said. There was, like an, there was an SI cover. It was just, I don't know, it was banned. And I don't know if this is anything to do with anything, but Dave Pallone years later become one of the first, you know, um, people in sports to come out of the closet. So I don't, I don't know if that, that one was brought up. I don't know if it was relevant or what, but um, Dave Pallone was definitely the umpire. He was one of those guys you always knew about. He was national league umpire here. He announced him along with like Dick Stello and Dutch Renner for the games. He was pretty well known for national league fans. And uh, yeah, Rose went pretty damn nuts. So you, yeah. What do you, what do you suppose they talked about in that conversation? Like, do you know how much money I had? <laughs> so, I mean, insert your own joke. I don't know. There is the SI cover, though. I got to find it. It's driving me crazy. 
But yeah, banned for also, 30 games. Uh, Pete got banned, and uh, this would be shocking to know uh, for you. The Reds radio announcers, Marty Brenneman, good old Franchester, and Joe Nuxhall were criticized for inciting the fan response because fans threw crap onto the field. Um, with what were characterized as inflammatory and completely irresponsible remarks. Oh, time, it, especially it, given Brenneman and Nuxhall's iconic status in Cincinnati and that it was common for spectators at ballparks to listen to their team's radio broadcast using portable radios. So basically, yeah. Marty could get them fired up and get them thrown shit on the field. Way to go. Way to go, Marty. Break. Maybe drop it on a few F-bombs or maybe, maybe even Marty wouldn't go that low. Or homophobia. Nobody knew Dave Pallone was gay in 1988, but that came out later. But yeah, it was what is it? May it was May. Cover uh, SI said suspended 30 days. Yeah, that's pretty big news. Yeah. Um, well, Pete was probably under duress. So, do you know who got the first hit in the night game in Wrigley Field history? Eight nine eighty eight. Would it be would it be the aforementioned Lenny Dykstra? It was Mark Grace. Oh. Mets went Had down. A boy, Grace. Mets went down. One, two, three in the fly ball strikeout, ground ball. In uh Don Zimmer's great lineup. Sean Dustin was leading off. <laughs> he flew out to center, Ryan flew out to right, and Mark Grace singled, and then Dawson flew out. Okay. Um, yeah, you should maybe uh Lenny consider... Homered in the Who did? Uh, Lenny Dykstra, did? Lenny Dykstra Homer. Dykstra did. Okay. I will say as a ball player, Dykstra is one of those guys that, that did rise to the challenge. Did rise to the occasion, I should say. Often, it seemed. So I guess he must have hit the, the – I don't think any Cubs homer, do they? Nope. So Dykstra had the first official home run in Wrigley Field history. And, How about that? And Ho-Ho, Howard Johnson, hit the second off Pat Perry. So Cubs won. Pat Perry, who had, who had been acquired for Leanne Durham. I know. Who, I got that wrong. I keep getting it wrong. Pat Perry. Uh, oh, it doesn't matter. Because Leanne Durham was. Yeah. He, Pat Perry was acquired. Yeah. From the Durham Reds. was traded. After after Grace showed up, played in San Diego, wore number 28. And then they were like, okay, you can stay. Here's 17. Now we got a trade bowl. And then we got Pat Perry. That's what it was. And then Leon went out and said, where's my manager? Suspended. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna go party. Yep. Uh, call me when Pete gets back. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was gonna say '88 Tom Browning, but then I'm like, no, wait, Tom Browning uh, was a rookie in '88, and he won 20 games. He did not stand on the roof. We already mentioned that he did that in '93, stand in front of the portico on the roof on the Sheffield during a game. So, Vance Law in his All Star season was hitting 302 at the All Star break, 362 on base, 411 slug. In the second half, he hit 284 with a 354 on base and a 413 slug. He basically had the same. Oh, he did not fade, although he only. That's another. It's another Mandela effect, kind of like. By the way, he was uh, terrible in '89. Terrible. That's why they had to go out and get uh, Luis Salazar. Right. That's what it was. He actually had a pretty good season most of most of the most of the year. Vance, of course, played at uh, BYU, and I believe he might still be their baseball coach. 
Yeah, he uh, he is a Mormon. I'm pretty sure his father, Vernon Law, pretty sure a member of the 1960 World Championship uh, Pirates. Uh, and his brother Rudy played with him on the uh, right. They were 80, teammates uh, together. 83 White Sox. Right, they were like a regular, affair. a Lou brother, yep. local connection. They were for. They must be fraternal twins. They don't. They don't look a lot alike. Now, Rudy didn't have the big glasses for starters. I mean, even like if you look at the '88 Cubs and like they list players by war, just look at Vance Law's profile. It's like, like really, you might like are you not afraid you're gonna fry your eyeballs with those things, those Sally Jesse Raphael glasses you got on your head. Oh, by the way, his dad was a his his dad's only 20 win season was in 1960. So oh, Vernon yeah. Law. Yeah, through 18 complete games, won the league. And won the Cy Young. Did not know that Vernon Law was a Cy Young Award winner for a World Series champion. And his son was a 1988 All-Star. Uh, so Damon Berryhill uh, was the primary catcher. of Jody Davis was still around. He caught 80, He played in 88 games. And Jim Sundberg played 24 games for the Cubs. It was Sundberg's second season. It always seemed like a weird acquisition. Sundberg was like a guy that I only recognized through baseball cards because I was not an American League fan. So I never saw the Texas fucking Rangers. But Jim Sundberg was like the day in and day out, everyday catcher for the Rangers. Apparently, I found out later he was an Illinois native from Galesburg, you know, Carl Sandberg's uh, uh, domain. And yeah, kind of came home to Illinois when he was still sort of in his prime. It always seemed weird that. Uh, Dallas Green would have brought him on. I believe Summer came out in '87 to the Cubs, but he yeah. it seemed like he was he was still like an everyday catcher, unless up until that point. Yeah, he caught um, 100 and, caught 140 games for the '86 Royals. Roy, he'd gone to Kansas City yeah. for a year. Okay, uh, he and then, uh, uh, he won six Gold Gloves with the Rangers. Wow, really good catcher. Yeah, so it felt like a luxury, actually, at the time to have Jody and Sunberg. They were both, like, everyday catchers. And then, again, prospect pervert alert. We've got David Burial. Again, Cubs had prospects seemingly at every position. And Burial was, you know, if he had he stayed healthy, he could have been a good player. He did hit a homer for the Braves in the 91 World Series. Just, uh, you know, I think we bemoaned the the sad fate of David Burial. Things might have gone a little bit differently if we had him as catcher in 89. And not uh, but Rick over Rona the, and Joe uh, Girardi. The tandem of Joe Girardi and Rick Rona, both batting with I mean, balsa wood bats. Barrahill had pop. I mean, he's a big guy. Or is he big? It says here he's only six foot two oh five. That's still pretty big by nineteen eighty eight standards. Um, I see one name on that roster, by the way, before we wrap it up at some point. Uh, I forgot to mention I forgot to mention the third player that the Cubs got when they traded Steve Trout after its consecutive shutouts. I mentioned the never-remembered uh, uh, Dean Wilkins and Rich Scheid, but the young Yankee prospect that I remember being excited about that would go on to have great success after he did nothing with the Cubs, Bob Tewksbury, oh, member yes. of the ABA Cubs, somehow yeah. discovered himself with the Joe Torre, Mike Jorgensen Cardinals and had uh, saved some face professionally before he retired. Uh, so the, the primary rotation for the Cubs, I can't imagine why they only won 77 games. Uh, Greg Maddox, Rick Sutcliffe, that's pretty good. Jamie Moyer, 9-15, but with a 348 ERA. Then Calvin Chiraldi, and then Al Nipper made 12 starts. Jeez. All right, that's Jim Fry's dream rotation. 
You know, I forty percent of that Lee Smith. They don't have a lot of starts. Uh, I mean, I kind of wonder. It was Maddox started thirty four games, sucks of thirty two. Moyer thirty, so that's not well, out of me- the. But then it's we weird. mentioned you got Pico. Nipper. I guess Pico made thirteen, and then Harkey and Black yeah. both made five. I guess that makes sense. You know, a less lackmaster. I was thinking maybe the old Don was throwing Greg out there on short rest, just trying to you know wear him out. No, but it is interesting that Maddox had such a precipitous drop off. He was I just remember how white hot he just suddenly became. It was exciting. Yes, yeah, so we talked about the the walks. Uh, he walked eighty one in eighty eight. He walked eighty two in eighty nine. He walked seventy one in ninety, sixty six in ninety one. 70 and 92. Then he left the Cubs and then listen to his walks after he leaves the Cubs. 52, 31, 23. 23 walks in 28 starts. What year is that? That's uh, 1995. Yeah, strike short year. That's when he had fewer 28, starts. 20, 20. There's 20 walks in 33 starts in 1997. 45, 37, 42, 27 in. He's. 35 years old, he walks 27 guys in 34 starts in 2001. Uh, 45, 33, he comes back to the, with, even with the Cubs, 33, 36, and 37. Jeez. Man. Just once kept, he stopped, I mean, he, kept, never, he never walked a lot of guys. But he kept he, refining it. You're right. He showed up. I mean, uh, he just, I mean, that's that right there. Just that whole uh, progression is the sign of a guy that continued to learn how to pitch. He never stopped learning. I know it sounds cliche, but it's fucking true. I mean, in 1988, it was a bright, hot star. He'd win a Cy Young for the Cubs four years later. And then even then, we would be totally forgiven if we did not project what would come because who the hell could have when he got 94, 95, 96? That's just like, that's... Certainly not uh, Stanton Cook. You know that. Yeah, I know. Oh, he's not worth that much money. <laughs> $28 million for five years? Oh, come on. What are we just... We just throwing money around? Uh, really? Uh, if Maddox and Moyer... He didn't want to leave. Uh, yeah. In fact, they were, had agreed to a deal, and the Cubs what, took it to Stanton. He said, that's too much. It was all dysfunctional by then. Bear in mind, this was earlier that, you know, that whole much that I've discussed this mediocrity by design it was if it happened a couple years earlier maybe it would have saved their asses but Jim Fry really torched the franchise and then ownership just uh, they, they just curtailed everything and Maddox not continuing as a cub is essentially a result of all that that whole chain of events it all goes back to Dallas Green who drafted Greg Maddox and Maddox would have been a cub had Green been there but uh, let's see, 88 Manny Trio was still knocking around. Um, Crazy. On his, on his second stint, which lasted three seasons. He would finish up the next year in Cincinnati. Um, yeah, Leon Durham only played uh, 24 games before he got traded. Salud, Leon. Angel Salazar, the shortstop, played 34 games for the Cubs. Just a, a teaser of Luis the next year. Everybody's favorite uh, f- uh, Cub, Dave Meyer, 
Uh, played in two games for them. It was a- I'm looking at that. That's M-E-I-R, and I guarantee you right now that I have a tap. I'm sure that's the same guy of, of whom I have a tap baseball card from five years earlier as a member of the Seattle Mariners. Bunting. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> nope, he didn't play for the Mariners. Never Maybe mind. Twins. Maybe it was a twin card. Yeah, that's my only hope. Otherwise, carry on. Uh, let's see. I can run through the pitcher. I guess we pretty much got through the pitchers. Yeah, Jeff Pico, uh, Jeff Frank DePino, who would uh, who would become such good friends with Mark Grace that they would get in a fight when Frank went to the Cardinals, and it would end up uh, separating or at least dislocating Grace's shoulder. Although in the fight. I will say Grace, Grace did. You know, you don't. Grace kind of kicked his ass in that fight, even though yeah. he fucked him his shoulder up. He took him down. So you don't often see that in baseball fights, if ever. Like actual fights is my point. Yeah, I, DePino, how many innings did he, he pitched a lot? He was actually a useful pitcher for the Cubs in this. Yeah, 90, of time. 90 innings in yeah. 63 games. Yeah. Was, he wasn't just a loogie. He was giving you. No. Yeah, he had been a, uh, he was an 86 Astro, right? Yeah. Oh, he came uh, to the Cubs in 86. He got traded. Oh, he got traded off that team. He must have loved that. Oh, was man. Was it for Billy Hatcher? I bet you it was. Let's find out. Let's bring this shit full circle. Guarantee you. It's got to be. No. Davy Lopes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that hurts. So close. Hatcher might be a playoff team so that a 43-year-old Davy Lopes can. 43-year-old who still managed to steal some 50-odd bases in 1985. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) Now, Billy Hatcher, by the way. Oh. Well, Billy Hatcher was traded by the Cubs way earlier, after 85, uh, for Jerry Mumphrey. Yeah. Oh, Jerry so, Mumphrey. Yeah, well, I yeah. so yeah, I can't fault that. We got like a, a ready-made player for a guy that would just turn out to be a postseason stud, which proved to not be relevant for the Cubs of those years. So uh, The 88 Cubs also had um, – a guy who had been the third overall pick in the 1984 draft. Drew Hall. Left-handed. No, I'm sorry. Yes. Left-handed pitcher out of Moorhead State, Drew Hall. He was taken uh, ahead of guys like Corey Snyder. Cover of uh, SI in 87. Eric Pappas, who would pitch for the Cubs. We talked. Now, catcher, wasn't he? Or was he a pitcher? I oh, forget that. Yeah, right. Pitch. Catcher Eric Pappas. That's the, Milt, his old man. That's what I was thinking. Right. Uh, Jay Bell. Uh, some guy uh, named Mark McGuire. Yep. Uh, Oda B. McDowell. 84 is Greg Maddox, too. Greg Maddox was like 15th or maybe third or fourth round. Maddox was drafted in 84. I'm almost sure of it. You'd have to dig a little bit to Oda find that. Oda B. McDowell, who I like just because of the name. And he played in the, Oda B. He played with Tiger on, his- the, on the uh, Olympic team. And we all have the Odin McDowell Tops USA baseball card. Yeah. Terry Mulholland was the 24th pick. Did you come? Uh, Norm Charlton was the 28th. But Drew, that was probably an 88 red. Certainly a 1990 red. Uh, Greg Maddox was the second round pick yeah, in 84. Yeah, I thought he was the second round pick. Yep. So then Drew Hall and Greg Maddox. But again. Much like the, uh, the, the draft they just had where they took uh, Cade Horton in the first round, and then they took uh, Jackson Ferris, the high schooler, in the second round. 
it's kind of the same thought. They save a little yeah. money in the first round on the college uh, pitcher, sure. and then they, they get the high school pitcher, and he goes to the Hall of Fame. So Because Drew Hall was a celebrated Olympian, even though he was not deemed worthy to have his own tops card, like Odie McDowell or Mark McGuire. I mean, the reason or, that I clicked on Drew Hall, I thought it was him. The Cubs had a guy around this time who had a season where his ERA was infinity, and it wasn't Drew oh. But I remember looking at the tops card, and it had the sideways. You know, they had the infinity symbol on the card. I it was no, they did not have. I, I'm questioning your memory. Yes. I would think that they would have just a dash. Uh uh-uh. uh. had. I had to figure out what Come the on. what the sideways eight was. Are you sure that was in flair, and that was like their celebrated well, new maybe. feature? But I know that I had a baseball card that had the infinity Don sign Ross. on the baseball card. Okay, um, got to look that because I'm sure there are a few, plenty of pictures in the last 20 years you could find. Uh, an infinity ERA, however they represent it on baseball reference, yeah. and then find that card. Well, it had to be around the mid. It would have had to have been around the 80s. But it wasn't Drew Hall. You've already ruled him out? Well, no, he doesn't have a season on here where he had an infinity. He had 456, 689, 766, 370, 509. Uh, yeah. yeah, he wasn't yeah, no, no infinite. God, you know, God, Drew Hall, actually, I, would not, I don't even remember him coming. I remember being excited about him, and only, but he pitched in 45 games for the Cubs. In parts of uh, 86, 87, 88. You'd think I'd remember that because I would have been excited because he was a first-round pick. But I think the thing is he kind of struggled and he was out of college. So the fact that he wasn't called up till 86, probably a sign that, ah, maybe he's not so good. And then, you know, he was, quite frankly, when you bemoan the trade that Jim Fry would make after the season in which he dealt Jamie Moyer, and Raphael Palmero and Drew Hall. And that was all that he gave up. We got back uh, one good year for Mitch Williams. Uh, Paul Kilgus sucked, but we did get Steve Wilson, the left-handed Canadian yep. sort of believer. And he was kind of the Drew Hall analog, you know, just where like Kilgus was the Moyer analog at the time. And I don't know, whatever you compare Palmero to uh, the wild thing. But I remember like Steve Wilson was a much more effective Cub than Drew Hall ever was for the Rangers. So, that part of the win. There's a W in your column, Jim Fry. I also remember Steve Wilson used to um, hide behind his glove on the mound. Kind of John Lester-esque. Okay. You know, he had it spread real wide, and he kind of peered over the top of it while he was looking for the sign. I remember that. I remember he had to well, make he had to make he had to make a big spot start for the '89 Cubs, and he came up big. And he had he was very useful. He was like a really yeah. Steve Wilson. I don't know if we gave him his due in '89, but he uh, he was uh, as a young guy thrown into the fire like a Les Lancaster and Jeff Pico. He did he did just well. And I also um, am remiss to have not mentioned uh, Curtis Wilkerson. Jim Fry also finagled Curtis Wilkerson out of that. So. God, I hope I didn't forget anything. I talked about uh, John Cangelosi throwing me a ball when I was distracted. So I think I, so you know, I know it's the eighty-eight. But I think I found the spot start that I was so uh, September tenth. Cubs at home against the Cardinals. Steve Wilson started, pitched five. Oh, you innings, went to, gave you're up, in nineteen eighty-nine, yeah, right? Five okay. innings, four hits, one run, and he struck out ten. I'm positive that was it. Big win for the Cubs who, uh, uh, let's see, I don't know what the. And you were there or you just remember the game? I just remember it. 
That's what yeah. I remember. If you asked me about Steve Wilson, I remember. Well, it's good. We did not remember that. Well, no, that's fair. We did not remember that crap when we did 1989. Oh, yeah. So. The Cubs had a one and a half game lead over the Cardinals and pushed it to two and a half with that win in September. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's actually probably Steve Wilson's finest moment as a Cub, actually. Yeah, so far, far better than whatever Drew Hall uh, provided for the 86, 87, or 88 Cubs. None of it matters. I just know that the 88 Cubs were entertaining. Things would get better. And then we just couldn't recognize it at the time, but the mechanism was already being dismantled to prevent real long-term success. So it's really bittersweet to look at. So I have fond memories of it. Lights went on. The team was young and good. And we just didn't know that our legs were already or neither we were being, you know, the trap door was opening slowly. Well, and they had in the playoffs, they ran into the Giants who were, uh, Roger Craig had taught them all the, the split finger fastball. <coughs> Not like they also were spitting all over the ball. We know they were, they were sure. cheating, sure. blatantly cheating. The Cubs should have won the pennant. They were robbed of it. Either, it would, either way, my point is, wouldn't it matter because Jim Fry was in charge. It would have all be, if they, unless they won it all that Actually, year. But if you think about it, it probably is a good thing that it happened because if the Cubs win the if the Cubs win the pennant, game two of the World Series is at Wrigley Field, and all those commuters in San Francisco are heading home at the normal time, and they all die in an earthquake. Cubs saved the world. Cubs saved the, the, at least, least the city of, of Fran- eight hundred fifty thousand San Franciscans. Yep. Yep. You're welcome. Yep. That's, they don't. Uh, they gave it back to us in the uh, in the ninth inning of game. They did in 2016. Yeah. They paid the Bruce Bochy said, "I'm just going to use every one of my relief pitchers for one batter right. and see if you can score four runs." Oh, you did, and we lost. So right, it was bound to happen, but it, it all evened out. I just happened to notice I, that there was a game on May 14th in which the winning the winning pitcher. You remember the Houston left-hander Bob Nepper? Oh yeah. Good pitcher. I remember, in fact, when we got Al Nipper, I'm like, oh, please tell me it's that left-hander Bob Nipper, not that shitbag for the Red Sox. Uh, and the losing pitcher, of course, was Al Nipper on May 14th. Hmm. I just happened to spy that. Nipper, Nipper. Nipper, Nipper. Yeah. And Al Nipper did not factor into too many games. But, yeah, that was uh, – I, I, part of me does think that that Lee Smith trade does not get enough attention as just being one of the most atrocious trades uh, in baseball history, let alone Cub history. So oh, he only had like 300 saves after they traded. Him. I and he, you know, yeah. Not that it might have made a difference in '88. It's more about the cascading effects. Well, that, the biggest, the, the the biggest thing about that is it's it's one thing to trade him; it's another thing to get nothing, which is what they got. They got nothing, but then you had to trade later, Palmero and yeah, Moyer to right. fix they the to hole. Chase, had to chase the failure, so it cost you. Yeah, and like grant, granted, Palmero didn't really have a position. I mean, you could have found a spot for him. He was an adequate left fielder; he'd been fine. Yeah, and you know, and maybe his libido factored into it. Who knows? But you still could have gotten. See, that's more another thing. If you keep, if you don't have to trade Palmero then, and you keep him, and then you decide later, all right, he really should be a first baseman for somebody. He's a more established player. You get more for him. Yeah. And I did look it up. I uh, he wasn't leading the league in hitting at the All Star game. I believe he was. Uh, I believe he was sitting second. They were seeing three eleven at the break when he made the All Star team. Nice. And he finished up at three oh seven. So yeah, he was a guy where he was a first round pick himself. I think in eighty five. 
former uh, college teammate of Will Clark and Jeff Brantley. Well, and Bobby State. Bobby Thigpen. Oh, and Bobby Thigpen. Well, they were loaded. Thought, Jeff Brantley also on yeah, that the team? Yeah, the Cowboy. I'm positive Jeff Brantley was on there. Jeff Brantley, I remember chatting him up in the bleachers when he was at the Reds in 96. I was doing a lot of chatting back then. He was pretty funny. Um, Wow. Yep. Yeah, that Mississippi State team. Because, yeah, they would bring it up constantly, right? Because it was always a little bit confusing. It was like, Will Clark's the guy in the Giants. Our guy's Mark Grace, who didn't really go to college. But Palmero was also a first baseman, left-handed guy. Played with Palmero. So that one that one team had four legit, you know, like like Palmero Palmero would have been in the Hall of Fame if he hadn't. Yes, it up. he's Will uh, Clark, borderline Hall of Famer, was never going to make it because it's borderline Hall of again with the Harold Baines principle, they're all Hall of Famers. Bobby Thigpen, who for for a long time was the uh, single season save leader, and then Brantley it's played for like. 15 years he was, or something. He was the primary closer for at least a couple teams. Uh, Will Clark's uh, war, 56-5. That's higher than Harold Baines. I don't think I have to look up Paul Marrow's, but out of curiosity, I even wonder if Bobby Thigpen's more. Well, and then we had the, they had the ironic um, thing. We talked about it in, uh, in 03. Um, when the Cubs tried to trade for Palmero and he wouldn't go. No. Yeah. And the reason was he didn't want to leave Texas. And the Rangers were trying to tell him that we're not bringing you back. And he wouldn't believe them. And he stayed, and then not only did they let him go, who did they replace him with? Will Clark. Yeah. <laughs> His old college yeah. teammate. <laughs> and he went to Baltimore, and he had big years for the <laughs> Orioles, but he didn't want to go. So He had big years for the Orioles, not after 03, you're saying. He was at the end in 03, right? Oh, it, he went back to Baltimore. So he go back to Baltimore? Well, because he, right? he was Baltimore. Tanada gave him the right. He was the big free agent signing needle in the butt, and uh, he flunked his steroid oh, that, test. That would, that would have to be his second time, right? Because uh, he actually had Cubs, Rangers, and I think his greatest success was actually uh, Baltimore, right? Or he had some real good success. He really emerged in. Uh, yeah, he came back. So he went. He played for the Cubs until eighty through eighty eight. Then he was with the Rangers until ninety three. Then he went. So to the, the, then he went to the Orioles. Then he came back to the Rangers. So the point is, and then he went uh, back to the Orioles when they said, "Okay, you can go now." Electing to go back to Baltimore instead of electing to go back to Chicago. Yeah. Well, he didn't. He thought he was going to just stay in Texas. He didn't want to leave. Right. And the Rangers were trying to tell him the reason we're trading you is you're not in our plans anymore. And he's like, "Ah, of course I am." And he wasn't. And if you believe him, that's exactly what happened. He goes to Baltimore. He plays with Miguel Tejada. Miguel gives him, hey, I'm, you know, that's what he, he got wants some vitamin B. And he get, took some vitamin B right at the old, uh, you know. Well, because he was 39, 40. Right. He was, uh, you know, he was over 500 homers, but suddenly 500 homers wasn't seeming so unique. He just well, he was chasing the going. three. He was, he was trying to hang on to get his 3,000th hit. He yeah, did. he barely got three thousand heads. That's and that's when that's when he that's when he claims okay. that he took the stuff that flunked the test. Well, career of bad choices. Hopefully, he got crabs from Cindy too. On top of it all, yeah, I would think most. I think most of the team did because I, I feel like we suffered from his bad choices. Because you know, not that Jim Fry wouldn't have given him away anyway, but felt like Jim Fry was forced to deal with Palmero, and I I put that on Raffy. Not on the siren that may have enticed well, How much them. better are the 80, 90, 91 Cubs if they have Dave Martinez and Rafael Palmero playing center? Oh, my gosh. I, I could live without Mark Grace. 
yeah. instead of or, instead of Dwight or, and Jerome, who were good, or even, weren't as good as those two guys. Or even put slip Palmero to first and let you know. Ah, you don't want Dwight Smith as your everyday outfielder. Well, no, you got could have had them both. He would have been a fine probably, outfielder. Probably needed to have Mark Grace on that team too. So. Yeah, keep Grace. He was. A, I'm sure he's a better glove man than uh, than Palmero was. You could have flipped Smith, who was a great hitter, and uh, it just not a good outfielder, and you know, built it. But that's presuming, of course, Andy, that we had a uh, good general manager. We did. No, we had we had the guy who'd been the man who'd been the manager, and then was uh, proving to be a complete dullard on the right. radio. Right. In no way qualified to be GM. It was such a lazy move. So did they replace? Did he get replaced on the on the Cub Radio team by Dave Nelson? Do you remember that? Dave Nelson was the radio guy in '89. Yeah. So yeah, I guess he would have been. Oh, he was atrocious. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. So Fry would have stepped in during that time in which like Vince Lloyd and Lou Boudreau quietly disappeared. So at some point, Dwayne Stats was having to hold it down with Jim Fry, right? Yeah, maybe for only a year. Maybe yeah. just '87, and then '87 at the end of the season, he takes over as the. GM. Yes, 87 would be the year, and then would have been replaced. Maybe Davey Nelson did two years, 88, 89, because I know Davey Nelson did it with, with Dwayne in 89, and Dwayne left after 89, after which point they recreated the, the whole thing with Brennan, Brennan and Sandville. Yeah, I think he nailed it there. We, we struggled piecing it together and boring people to death with the whole Dwayne Stats, Vince, like Vince Lloyd, Lou Boudreau thing in the mid-80s, but you pretty much got it. I think it was just one year. 87, because he got fired in 86, comes back 87, still in good graces, and then he's the GM after. So he was, he, he was never really gone. He just got progressively more destructive. Yeah, right. They put him in a position where he could do more harm. Right. <laughs> and so, so it goes. All right. Well, there they were. The, 80, the 88 Cubs, I remember they were um, like they were giving us hope. Like there were young, good players. Maddox had a great year. We liked Grace. And there was legit hope. We thought yep. Andre, we didn't realize Andre's knees that basically. Yeah, they, they Andre were, would produce for a few more years. But yeah, he was coming off an MVP season. So nobody would be convinced that he was on the downside in 88. Well, it was, and we, his whole 89 season is clouded by the fact that he had no business playing in the playoffs. His knees yeah, were it, shot. It, and it, he it, kept it, coming it, up in huge spots. And we broke it down. It was heartbreaking because you couldn't be mad at him, and it was one just bad time. It was one bad season. He was so awesome every other year. It was definitely eighty-eight. Was definitely a year in which we had hope, and it was justified. It wasn't dumb hope. It wasn't like ninety-one where it all turned to dust. It was like, yeah, they built on it, and you know they could have built on it more, but other factors were in play. Yeah, problem was I picked a dope to be the guy trying to build the roster. So, all right. Alrighty. Well, there's 1988, and we're we're heading in the home stretch here. So there we go. We'll put it in the books. All right. Well, see you next time. See you, Andy. Thanks. Many of us have herpes. 